If you ask a soldier what his or her most important piece of gear or kit, depending on where you're from, is they will tell you it's your boots. You need boots. If you're going to take a long walk or a hike or even a run, you need a good, strong, supportive, stiff, thick-soled pair of boots that are going to give you the protection that you need. What if that is the exact opposite of what you really need to do any of those activities and many, many more. Well, we're going to hear about that on today's episode of The Movement Movement, the podcast for people who want to know the truth about what it takes to have a happy, healthy, strong body, starting feet first, because you know those things are your foundation. Uh, We break down the propaganda, the mythology, sometimes the outright lies you've been hearing about what it takes to walk or run or play or do yoga or CrossFit, whatever it is you like to do, and to do it enjoyably, efficiently, effectively. Did I mention enjoyably? I know I did. It's a trick question. Because look, if you're not having fun, do something different until you are, because you're not going to keep it up if you're not enjoying it. So I'm Stephen Sashin, CEO of ZeroShoes.com, your host, of the Movement Movement Podcast. And FYI, we call it that because we at Zero Shoes and with the podcast are creating a movement, which involves you. I'll tell you why or how in a second. It's free. It doesn't take any effort. Um, uh, Creating a movement about natural movement, helping people rediscover that using your body the way it was made is the better, obvious, healthier choice, just the way we currently think of natural food. So go to www.jointhemovementmovement.com to find previous episodes, all the different ways you can interact with us. You don't have to do anything to join, just you know, share and like and give a thumbs up and spread the word and subscribe. I mean, you know the grill if you want to be part of the tribe please subscribe. So let us jump in with our guest, Chris Brannigan. Please um, say hi to the human beings and tell people who you are and what interesting thing you have recently done recently. Thanks, Stephen. So my name is Chris. As you've heard, I'm a soldier in the British Army. And I very recently just walked a thousand miles barefoot from Maine down to North Carolina. It took me about 45 days of walking. So I think on average about 22 miles a day. And I did that to raise funds for a not-for-profit that my wife and I run called Hope for Hasty because we're funding research into creating a gene therapy for my daughter's rare disease, which is called Cornelia de Lange syndrome or CDLS for short. I want to hear about both of those. Let's start with the barefoot part. So as we started by saying, you know, boots are the most important piece of gear for a soldier. Clearly, uh, that was not the case when you were walking barefoot. Um, how did you decide to kick off your kicks, as it were, and make the switch to barefoot? I mean, this sounds like a crazy thing to the average human being. What crazy thing went through your mind to make this occur? Actually, what you said is is the truth. So my wife and I, Two years ago, almost. So in January of 2020, decided to start this charity because we wanted to create this therapy and fundraise. And of course, we went straight into sort of COVID-19 and lockdown. And we thought this is terrible because we'd raised some money, but nowhere near the kind of money we needed. We had already got bills coming in from labs and scientists. So we thought we've got to be able to do something big, you know, huge to capture people's imagination as soon as we uh, get out of lockdown. And we wanted to do like a long walk. There's a really famous walk in the United Kingdom called Land's End to John O'Groats, which goes diagonally across the UK. And I said, I could do that. And my wife said, no, people do that for fun. You know, they they do it in stages or they cycle it. You know, that's not going to work. And I said, Maybe I'll wear a kit, you know, I'll wear all my military kit, you know, that'll be attention grabbing. She said, oh, it's good, but it's not, I don't know if people will really be grabbed. They won't know what you're doing. And I, and I think in a moment, like a Jerry Maguire-esque moment of insanity, I said, maybe I'll do a barefoot, you know, I'll take my boots off. 
And she said, there's no way anybody could do that. It's just not possible. <laughs> so that led to my first barefoot walk, which was last year. So it was, it was a moment of lunacy. I, before that, walking barefoot was something I did on the beach only when playing with the kids. So, so it literally just popped into your brain that way. It's just an extreme thing to do. There was no kind of, you know, history of barefoot, whatever. It just like showed up as this is the craziest thing I can think of. Exactly. That's how it started. Um, well, you know, ironically, that's kind of how Zero Shoe started as well. I had this idea. Um, I was making sandals for people and someone said, hey, if you had a website, I could put you in a book that I'm writing. And so I rush home and I pitch this incredible opportunity to my wife who says, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Don't do it. It's a waste <laughs> of time and money. And I said, yeah, you're probably right. So I waited till she went to bed and then I built a website. Um, <laughs> so it seems you and I have this thing in common of just defying our wives. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Much to her consternation. But we were really lucky in that going barefoot really did grab people's attention, you know. So I started walking in this place called Land's End, which is miles away from anywhere in the United Kingdom, down in the southwestern corner. And as soon as I set off, people were looking, you know, they're like, why is that guy got no shoes on, you know? And they'd say, why do you need shoes? Are you okay? And I'd say, I'm walking barefoot to Edinburgh, which is where I wanted to finish 700 yeah. miles. And they said, you know, they couldn't get it. They had no words that, and they would sort of look at my feet and then look at me. And uh, yeah, it, it had the attention of really grabbing their attention. It was, it was amazing. Isn't it fascinating how when you're walking barefoot, you can see that people are noticing that you have no shoes on from a significant distance. Like I'm amazed at how much it grabs people's attention when it really shouldn't, but it does. I mean, I, you know, I'm in Colorado and I'm barefoot a lot and I'm in stores barefoot a lot. And I see people noticing from way on the other side of the store and same thing. It's like, you know, what are you doing? And I, and I said, and my response, I say, if we were at the beach, would you ask me that question? And they go, no, I go, well, then just pretend we're at the beach. And, you know, it's fun. It's comfortable. But I imagine, I mean, you did not have a bunch of barefoot walking, running, hiking, whatever experience before you set off. So what was it like? I mean, what were those, what was the, the transition, if you will, like, despite the fact that your transition was cold turkey, let's just jump in. It was really, really hard. And uh, that 700 miles, it took me 35 days and was easily the most difficult and painful thing I've ever done in my life, if I'm honest. So I started preparing maybe six weeks in advance, you know, going from boots, as you said, you know, with sort of an inch and a half of rubber underneath your foot and a lot of support on your ankle to wearing a lot of weight. I was carrying about 55 pounds on my back because I was camping out to keep costs down. I was carrying all my food and water. And um, yeah, and the thing I did when I was walking barefoot, I trained really, and I say trained, that's a very grand word. I walked barefoot with my kids. You know, we just go around the block and do like a mile or two miles. And then suddenly I was doing 25 miles, you know, in one shot. And I cut both my toes within the first mile because I wasn't lifting my feet high enough off the ground. So I dragged my toes and like tore a flap of skin off. That was painful. And I got lots of blisters, you know, within about four or five days, where, they all burst. Where, where, um, this is a diagnostic thing. Where were the blisters, ball of your foot or tips of your toes? Balls of my feet. Interesting. And so um, do you have an understanding of why that was happening? So I was really trying to figure out how to walk again. You know, yeah. I was used to walking in boots. I was sort of, I was sometimes shuffling a bit faster than a walk, slower than a run. And I normally I would run the heel to forefoot and, and move off. And I find I couldn't really do that. So it was a lot of time on the balls of my feet. And I think just because of the weight and the fact that my skin and my body wasn't prepared and the distance every day and no time for recovery, 
you know, the, the wear and tear was cumulative, unfortunately. I'm going to suggest that it might have been something a little different. If you have video from those early days, it'd be fun to, to see. Because um, mm-hmm. typically, you know, blisters, there's two things that are going to cause it. One is um, extreme heat, like, you know, sudden heat. We all know that. You put your hand on something, it, it'll blister. But the other one, um, especially for running or walking barefoot, is just friction, excessive horizontal force. And if you yeah. go from heel striking, where when you're doing that, you're usually landing with your heel further in front of your body and then decide just to land on the ball of your foot. Many people incorrectly just point their toes a little bit. So now you're getting that breaking force on the ball of your foot instead of uh, getting your foot underneath you. I imagine though, because I have a blister story as well from my first barefoot run of, I, I was overstriding, pointing my toes a little because I'm a sprinter. You're supposed to land on your toes, but my left foot was, you know, putting on the brakes every time I landed on mm-hmm. the ball of my foot and ended up with that, you know, giant gaping hole in the bottom. How did, what did you notice about how that changed over time and how your gait changed over time? Cause you were putting yourself, I mean, we would, I would obviously never recommend someone go like as extreme as you do right away, but when you're putting yourself in that situation, your brain and your body are going, I've got to figure this out. I imagine. Yeah. And that's what happens. So for the first two weeks, my feet just got worse and worse. And the blisters burst, I got infections and I had to take antibiotics. It was pretty bad. Because you're barefoot on the ground, you know, you couldn't avoid, you know, dirt and whatever else. So I had a two-day break and kept my feet off the ground, just relaxed. and was looked after for two days. And then I got back on the road and I I was still moving quite fast, but I find my feet started to get used to it, you know. So they were becoming stronger as I was as I was sort of heading north towards Edinburgh. You know, the blisters were still there and they were having to heal on the move, which was less than ideal. But yeah, I think over time, my body adjusted really well and uh, I felt stronger and stronger every day. Yeah, that's the other thing. I mean, the, again, the research shows, <laughs> crazily enough, we have to do research to show this idea, use it or lose it. If you've been in boots all that time, especially military boots, your feet can get get weaker the same way you know you put your arm in a cast. It doesn't come out yeah. magically stronger eight weeks later. But um, it's amazing how quickly we can build intrinsic foot muscle strength. Um, a doctor at BYU, Sarah Ridge, she showed that an eight-week period was um, more than enough to give incredibly changes to foot strength, whether you're just walking in a minimalist shoe, like zero shoes. She didn't use ours in the study, but said ours would give the same results, um, or barefoot, or doing an actual foot exercise program. So it's not surprising to hear that you just experienced that, but you were just, you know, that boy, what's the word I'm looking for? Grist, uh, I can't think of it. Um, there's a phrase involves fire, put it, throwing something into the fire. What the hell? Yeah. So it was like a trial by fire. I suppose. Yes, yeah. That was the phrase I couldn't find. So, and what was happening in your mind during that process? I mean, it's just to deal with that, those first couple of weeks in particular, how did you pull that off mentally? It was hard. It was really difficult. And on the occasions where I was on my own and I was in pain and I knew I had to get to, you know, some far flung town, maybe 20 miles away. Oh man. I was really struggling mentally, you know, and when you get it, I lost as sometimes I did because I wasn't paying attention, you know, and you're adding extra miles on and I'm getting cross with myself. There were times when I just thought I need to just stop doing this, but I was really fortunate that lots of people came to join me and they walked with me. And that really helped a lot. One, because they could read maps better than me, but also, <laughs> Because you're talking and you're busy and I was thinking less about what my legs and my feet were doing and more about just the people around me. And that really helped. But, you know, it's interesting, the whole military thing, you know, for me, I started in the army 14 years ago and within three months of starting, I hurt my knee and 
I had lots of knee problems for for years, right up until I started that barefoot walk. And before I started, I bought two knee supports because I thought I knew myself. I know anything over eight miles and my knees really start to suffer. You know, they start to become like a rusty hinge. It's hard to move them and sort of totally open out that joint. And I was really worried. I thought that before everything will take me out of the game. And interestingly, I had no knee problems. Mm -hmm. 25 miles a day, every day for over a month. And I wore my knee support preemptively for the first few days. And I thought, this isn't hurting me. I'll take it off. And still nothing happened. And that was just because I was out of boots. I think no heel, you know, you have a big heel on a boot and lots of ankle support and it changes the way you walk. And I thought, this is actually very odd. You know, it's a great surprise that my knees are in such good shape because I thought they were done for. There's a researcher in Brazil named Isabel Sacco who put minimalist shoes on the feet of elderly women, 65 years plus, who had knee osteoarthritis. Not just a mm. reported you know, knee pain, but x-ray showed they had osteoarthritis. And after six months, just walking around all day, every day in minimal shoes, gone. And you know what happens is it's upside down. People think that you need cushioning to protect your knee. But uh, And I was actually talking to Isabella about this just a couple of weeks ago. When you have a bunch of cushioning, it spreads out the pressure of landing on the ground, especially if you're landing incorrectly, and you have pressure sensors basically in your feet. And so they're getting less information, but the force is still coming through. So you don't feel it in your feet, but the force is going through your body. And if you're landing on your heel in particular with your knee relatively straight, it's going right up through your joints and it hits the knee first and then your hip and your back afterwards. So I asked her about the elderly women. She goes, yeah, they just got stronger by using their legs and more correctly using their muscles, ligaments, and tendons. And that protected the joints and they weren't putting force into the joints and then things just healed. So, you know, we hear things like that all the time. Can't make medical claims, but you know, it makes sense naturally if you're using your muscles, ligaments, and tendons to support your joints. Um, it's like if you step off a small ledge, you know, you don't land with a straight leg and just deal with the force. You land on the ball of your foot, your arch actually works, your legs bend, your knees bend, your hips bend, you protect yourself naturally. And that's what happens if you start running or walking correctly as well. And people don't realize they're even making the change most times because it's so slow. But for you, it's really acute because you were just dealing with it every day for hours and hours and hours. I got to ask, is that a personality thing that you would just dive into something blind like that and just grit your teeth until <laughs> it works? Yeah, you know... <laughs> And again, when we set up the charity, it was exactly the same. You know, my wife and I had been on this little journey of discovery where we were we were thinking there should be something we could do more yeah. than the doctors are telling us, you know, because they said there's nothing you could do, just just go home, sort it out. You know, learn to live with it was the phrase they used. And our daughter has lots of medical issues and educational issues as a result of her condition, et cetera. And we just kept learning and reading and reading and speaking to different people and we are in contact with some sort of world leaders and the sort of research science community who are working on gene therapies for other conditions. And they said, you could do it. You know, it costs huge sums of money. It takes all, it'll take a lot of time. You have to get a great team behind you, but you could create a gene therapy for your daughter's condition. And on a whim, we just said, we're going to do it. You know, there's no way we can now continue to live knowing that there's something we could do for our daughter and not do it. Yeah. And we set up a GoFundMe page. And slowly the charity came to life. And, you know, two years on now, here we are. We've got a great scientific team. We've created the gene therapy. We're just testing it now. So I think, yeah, it's personality driven. 
Well, I'm going to come back to the charity and the gene therapy things in a bit, but I have a few more questions about your endeavor, both in the UK and the US. So were you doing anything? What were you doing to promote it? I mean, the people who end up walking with you, how were they finding you? And what was their experience when they were with you? So I think, you know, people find it really inspirational. I think it's hard for me to say that because I didn't find myself inspirational. You know, I always thought of myself as a dad who's doing just what he needed to, you know, the only thing he could really help his daughter. Um, but they could see I was, you know, it would be difficult to walk 20 plus miles a day carrying 55 pounds of kit with shoes on, you know, but when you're on the road and, you know, in the States, it's not really set up for pedestrians. So sometimes I'm walking on like route one, it's really fast. It's really noisy. There's a lot of grit that's been sort of thrown off the road onto the onto the shoulder where I was walking. So it's very uncomfortable all day long. And I think people find it really inspirational. And that's what we were hoping for. We were hoping that people would just see the lengths that someone will go to for to help help the child. And so again, were you like, you know, doing anything to contact news people, radio, TV in advance? Were you just waiting till you got somewhere? Were you expecting it to be just kind of organic? I mean, literally, I'm trying to imagine how, if you had been walking by here, how I, how I would have heard about it. Needless to say, I would have joined you in a heartbeat um, had you been walking anywhere near Denver. But uh, I'm just curious how one organizes that to make it really work. We're a really small team. The charity is my wife and I, you know, and we both have normal jobs. So we're doing this sort of part-time evenings and weekends with a bit more effort during a challenge like this. But my wife behind the scenes in the United Kingdom was calling news media across Connecticut, you know, New Hampshire, wherever I was about a week in advance to try and tell them, this is what's happening. Chris is coming through. He's going to be here at these times and try and get sort of paper coverage on the web, radio, etc. And we had some really good hits. We had, we had the New York Post. We had People Magazine's website not People Magazine itself. Um, we got some really good TV coverage, uh, both in the UK and the US. So we were lucky that people responded really well. Did people, when they came out, did, were there people who then took off their shoes and walked barefoot with you? So when I walked in the UK last year, I had two people who walked barefoot with me for a full day. And that was really good for me. Yeah, yeah for sure. <laughs> because I could see they were sort of like discovering it at the same time as I was discovering it. You know, that was... <laughs> That helped me feel a bit better about myself, you know. And when I was in the States, uh, I had people who joined me for a little bit barefoot, but very short distances, you know, half a mile max. But what we did actually, after I walked in the UK, we had a relay. So we invited people to take part in a relay that retraced the same route using my daughter Hasty's favorite teddy bears, Batten. Uh, and man. people walked somewhere between three and seven miles barefoot. And uh, that was amazing to watch. People really got behind it. Oh, that's a great idea. I love that one. There's a guy, um, I don't know if there's a, any value in, in, in you guys hooking up, but there's a guy here, actually literally down the street, um, who has an organization called joy.org. And they help remove women from sexual slavery, but not just by getting them out, but by like tearing down the entire infrastructure that got them in to begin with. And he realized that he, a lot of the places he was working were places where everyone's running around in bare feet because they couldn't afford shoes. And so for the last, you know, probably 10 years, maybe more, he's been doing the same, just walking around in bare feet. And he has a great 
card that he gives people when they ask, you know, why he's doing this to show that it's about solidarity for helping get women out of sexual slavery. So there's now two people that I know, you and him, um, his name is Jeff, who are using barefoot walking as a way of getting attention to support something. I wonder, God, there's got to be something that we can do. And he puts on a barefoot run or barefoot, what do they call it? It's not a barefoot run, but it's like a, a one mile something. And you can either run it or walk it barefoot or do whatever, but it's just to get attention. But we got to we got to do something to get more and more people doing this and then hook you all up in some way. I think that would be a riot. I think it'd be great. You know, um, I'm a real advocate now of barefoot running, you know, as painful as it is to do all that distance and time and weight and, you know, as intensely as I did it, as I think any endurance event is inevitably going to be since then I've, I'm a convert, you know, one of the things I noticed that was really interesting was when I was preparing to come to the States, I was, I was trying to prepare a bit better than I did last time. So I give myself a bit more time. I walked barefoot, I ran barefoot and I was running with my wife one day and I realized how noisy she was when she ran, you know, just crunch, crunch, crunch on wherever we were going because our foot was hitting the ground so hard. Yeah. But when I was running, I was almost silent because you you place your foot down almost gently, you know, and it's so much kinder to your foot and your leg. There's there are people who report um, uh, going for barefoot trail runs and sneaking up on deer because the deer don't hear them coming. Really? Yeah, yeah, that's wow. a really fun one. Yeah, it it is entertaining. Uh, there's a guy I used to live on this this uh, cul-de-sac. And there was a guy running in, you know, those big, thick maximalist shoes that are supposed to provide mm. all this cushioning. I could hear him from a block away. just like, bam, 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 bam. And uh, I, I have, we have not lived there for a year now. I have no idea what's going on with him now, but I can't imagine that his knees or hips or back are not creating, having problems because of that, all that force. It just doesn't make sense. I'm in the army, as I said, you know, and it's an organization that is full of people you know, my evidence is anecdotal, but I feel like I know a lot of people who've had knee surgery, you know? Your evidence is anecdotal, but I can tell you this. We have, I don't know, 50,000 reviews from people who say things that are similar to what you say. And when you have, I, I will never say that anecdotes equal data, but when you have a preponderance of anecdotal information, there's a value to that. When it's when it's spontaneous, when it's not prompted, um, you know, there's there's something worth looking at there. And um, and there's research being done that backs it up. So Sarah Ridge about walking, Katrina Protopapas about putting art support in shoes and how that weakens feet. Isabel Sacco with the elderly uh, women. Isabel actually did research just showing like people in regular shoes, if they just do a foot strengthening program, their injury rate over the course of a year is two and a half times less than for runners who didn't do it. So she just wanted to see what, you know, start there. And then you combine that with the research about walking in minimalist shoes. It just seems screamingly obvious that if you, and it's not, I say always, it's not about the footwear, it's about the form. It's just certain footwear makes it easier or harder to have form that will be beneficial. I agree 100%, you know, and it's interesting, you've obviously studied this over a very long time, yeah. and I've sort of learned all the lessons in a really stupid, hard way. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, look, um, I, I, it's not that I studied it over a long period of time, I threw myself into it as well. I mean, I had the experience of um, being injured all the time as a sprinter, going barefoot, my injuries going away, becoming faster, becoming masters all American, and then starting this company and just same idea. I mean, it was just trial by fire. Now that I know the, I have the phrase in my mind. Um, in fact, there's a funny version of that. One day, Lena, my wife and co-founder, um, was kind of upset. She's saying, you know, I feel like I don't know what I'm doing. 
I said, no one knows what we're doing. And pretty much no one knows what they're doing either if they were honest, you know, when you're starting something new. So our job isn't to know it all and learn it all first. It's to figure out what we need to learn every day to keep going and move things forward. And you just had a crash course. You just did the speed reading version of that. Yeah, that's how I feel. But it's been really positive for me, you know, not only sort of physically, I feel, you know, it's funny, I I couldn't move very fast when I'm carrying a lot of weight. And I was stopping all the time to talk to people when I was out on the road because people came to see me and wish me well and give a donation. So my days were really long. And one of the things I missed was running. Mm. So when I came back, and I was able to just get out and sort of run unencumbered for five miles or six miles. It was like so amazing. And I used to be a person who who ran and sort of was watching my split pace and my timings. And, right. you know, I started to dread running because I was making a job out of it. And then I discovered, actually, I just love to be outside in nature and see the ducks and the trees. And, and for me, it's sort of rekindled my love with running. I say that you can always spot a barefoot runner from a hundred yards away because they're smiling. You know, they're doing it and and looking for how it, how to make it feel good while they're doing it instead of looking for just you know how to get done or zone out or anything like that. So I imagine you know people would walk up and say things like "You can't do that" as you're doing it, um, and uh, or being supportive and other in being supportive, which would be the opposite of that. But did you see? I'm trying to think of how to ask this question. People were saying they're seeing you doing it, but I'm sure a number of people said, yeah, that's you, but I couldn't do that. Did you bump any? I mean, what are the kind of arguments that you heard from people? And were there any people who were changed either in real time or that you heard about from encountering you and seeing that whatever they were saying or thinking was patently false? Because here's you as the evidence. I think almost universally, I can only think of two examples to the contrary, but people just said, I couldn't do that. And people, I think, thought, I'm going to try this out. And lots of people would message me like closer friends would say, you know, I just tried to walk to the end of the yard to put like the trash out <laughs> in my bare feet just to see how it was. And they say, oh, it's horrible. You know, how are you doing more than like two miles or whatever you're doing every day? You know, how can you do 20? I can't get to the end of the street and back. Um, but I know some people who've sort of been away. And actually, I saw someone in your shoes uh, <laughs> a few months ago and I thought, those are cool. Where did you get them? And he was telling me all about your shoes <laughs> randomly. So to be contacted by you is really interesting. But I think, you know, I work for an organization where people are essentially professional athletes. You know, you have to be physically yeah. fit all the time because you got to go somewhere. They don't think of themselves as professional athletes, but it's a job to be physically fit. And I feel like this is this is a piece of the puzzle that we're missing. You know, so many people have injuries totally. that relate to bad footwear. Well, um, Dr. Irene Davis at Harvard has been trying to get various grants to work with the military to demonstrate that there's a way of reducing injuries and improving performance by getting out of those shoes that they're typically wearing. Um, she's often run into obstacles because the military seems to have contract with big shoe companies who are very much opposed to finding out that their shoes don't work, even though there's actually been research that has demonstrated that. Here's one, um, uh, pardon me for dumping research on you. I hope you find it useful. This whole idea that there's different kinds of gait and feet. So either you need a neutral shoe or a motion control shoe or stability shoe or whatever the hell they are. I don't even remember the three categories and that they can analyze you and figure out which shoe is right for you. So the military put this to the test. They took some large number of people, divided that group in half. One group was analyzed and it's like, okay, you're getting the appropriate shoe based on this analysis. The other group, they all got the same shoe. The difference in injury rates between the people who were 
prescribed the right shoe and the ones who got a random shoe, the difference in the injury rate was zero, exact same injury rate and significant injury rate too. So, and the people who designed the, you know, here's the way to analyze you and put you in the right shoe, they know this and they're still promoting that whole idea. And people believe it because they don't know the research and they don't care, frankly, about the data. Um, you can't convince people who have a belief by showing them data that proves the belief is inaccurate. They just hold on to it more tightly. So it's the way human brains work, sadly. But yeah, and there's a um, a doctor here in West Virginia named Mark Kukuzela, who's a Air, former Air Force doctor. And he uh, he's a practicing physician. He owns a footwear store that only sells minimalist footwear called Two Rivers Treads. Um, he's still active in the military in some way. I don't remember exactly what he does, but he also has been working very hard to A, train people how to run properly, even if they're in crappy footwear, but also get them out of crappy footwear. And it is, I don't know what it's like for the British military, but it, it's just shocking how something that can demonstrably be helpful, they're unwilling to even test it. I can't imagine that it costs a lot to test something like that if you consider the size of most national defense budgets. Oh, no. It's, you know, the biggest thing is it just takes time because if you want to do the study well, you definitely want to take six months to a year just to see the longer term impact and see. Like, there's one guy that I know who he lives in a, a very closed community with a couple hundred people, and many of them switched, almost all of them switched to minimalist footwear and they're on factory floors all day, 12 hours a day on concrete. And when they switched, um, he said the number of injuries in lower of in the, of the lower body that I started treating went down to almost zero. But he says, but there was like three or four people who tried the minimalist footwear and didn't like it. And uh, but what he then reported later was, you know, after they kept seeing the benefits that other people were having, they decided to try it again, like six months later, and then they switched and became converts. Now, like the entire community is nothing but minimalist footwear because they just and and that's the thing that we fundamentally need is enough visibility, whether it's barefoot or minimalist, so that people get over the, hey, isn't that weird? And just start seeing people having positive experiences until they go, all right, maybe I should try that. And it's not just the crazy people like you and me and you know the couple million other people who've done this. Um, uh, you know, we, we, It needs to get to, I don't know what the number is, but we need to hit a certain critical mass Absolutely. I feel like people aren't really talking about it a lot. You know, people are buying footwear based on design and aesthetics, you know, what looks nice and, and mostly what looks nice is what's usual for the eye, Correct. you know, and that means a pointy shoe or, you know, something usually that's fairly unhelpful. Well, and that's a really interesting point as well is it's like, if we're not used to it, then that tends to keep us away. There's a whole marketing principle about that. If you make something dramatic enough, it becomes polarizing. And there are some people who will love it and some people who will hate it. And then if you're able to stick around long enough, the people who hated it get used to it and they don't hate it as much. And then um, maybe a few of those come to the other side and then you can tone it down a little bit and it becomes more acceptable across the board. So there's a possibility there. But anyway, we can do that. Let's dive into charity things. So I want to start from the beginning again. Can you tell me the name of this condition that your daughter has? Uh, the condition is called Cornelia DeLine syndrome. It's a genetic condition. So it's not inherited from Hassi's mom or myself. It was a de novo mutation, meaning it was just totally random. And, uh, you know, for kids, it means in, in most severe cases, it means some kids are missing some of their fingers or their forearm hasn't formed properly or their forearms. Um, 
It can mean sort of learning disabilities, cognitive disabilities, and seizures, feeding problems, cardiac issues. Um, and what's scary for us is Hasty's 10 next month. And from puberty, we know there's a downturn in kids who have CDLS. So they they develop self-harming behaviors. They can become, they get uh, anxiety disorders. They can become selectively mute. So it's really frightening. Wow. And um, obviously a very rare disease. I mean, can, disease isn't really even the right word since it's a genetic error, if you will. Um, so about roughly how many people are affected by this? So uh, they reckon it affects about one in every 20,000 births. So that's thousands of people in the United yeah. States and hundreds in the United Kingdom. But, you know, there are so many rare diseases like that you just never hear of them all. And, and it's interesting what you described. There, that's a lot of, um, a lot of uh, I don't want to use the word symptoms, a lot of effects that seem completely unrelated to each other. Since you've been doing the, and having scientists do the work on the genetic aspect of this, I mean, how, what have they found genetically? What are the SNPs they found? What, what are they seeing that's causing these seemingly very disparate effects? Uh, so it's interesting, and I don't understand that science very well. And we came at it from a different angle, my wife and I, because there was some research going on in this space already, and scientists were trying to get after answering those questions. You know, what is the mechanism of, you know, a fault in this gene that results in A, B, C, D, E, F, all of yeah. these symptoms? And we said, we actually don't care about the science. You know, we don't care how it gets from a faulty gene and the mechanisms to get there because we knew gene therapy could help deliver a working copy of the gene to the cells in the body. Right. Working copy equals all of that middle bit as complex and intractable as it may be, will start to sort itself out right. and those symptoms will lessen. And that's what we've been getting out after. You know, it's interesting to understand the science, but we're after treatments for kids like our daughter. I'm also interested just in that, in that first bit, I don't care about the middle bit as much, but like, what is the sequence that you need to replace? And cause again, it just seems such a, like such an odd combination of effects to be coming from a single area in a single chromosome, if that's where, what's going on. Um, yeah, it's a single gene. So in Hasty's case, uh, in fact, in CDLS, there are seven genes that contribute to the conditions. So a child could have a faulty HDAC8 gene or an NIPBL gene. These are all different genes, but they all result in the same clinical outcomes, more or less, you know, with degrees of severity. But the way gene therapy works is really interesting is they take a benign virus called an adeno-associated virus or an AAV9, which does what viruses do when they get into the body. It propagates itself as widely as it possibly can, but it has no adverse effect in itself, really. But it's loaded with a working copy of the gene. And in Hasty's case, it's called a, a HDAC8 gene, HDAC8. And it drops off a good copy in every cell that it visits, meaning that that cell now has the instructions that it should have had from the outset to do whatever it needs to do, including proteins or enzymes, etc. And then you start to see a lessening in symptoms and improvement in condition. And hopefully, if you can get it into kids early enough, you know, Hasty's nearly 10, but kids are born with this condition all the time. Yeah. And our hope is that rather than sitting in front of a geneticist and they say there's nothing can be done, people will be told there's a therapy and we can get you lined up for that straight away and it'll improve their lives. And so you said you're in the testing phase now? 
Yeah, so we've created the gene therapy, we've manufactured it, we're working in partnership with a great uh, laboratory called Jackson Laboratory in Bar Harbor in Maine, and they're world leaders in disease modeling. So they are testing it right now, and to get FDA approval, you need to show two things, efficacy, so you show that it works, it has positive effect, and safety. Yeah. So we're doing that testing right now. Um, how far along are you? When do you think the results will be in from the testing? So we really started to develop the vectors and, and do all that work. Um, I think in March or April last year, and then we've been uh, developing these disease models, etc., with the Jackson Laboratory. So that work is due to start imminently, probably after Christmas. Oh wow! And depending on how it goes, we would expect to see at least preliminary results within within three months. God, that's, I can imagine that being simultaneously exciting and nerve wracking. It is because for a number of reasons, one is the amount of money we have to raise. We're trying to raise two and a half million pounds, which is about three and a half million dollars. And where are you? And uh, we've raised about one and a half million dollars. So we're about 35% to target. We're about a third of the way there. But our worry has always been that we created gene therapy. We show that it works in the lab but we don't have enough money to run a clinical trial. And that happens, you know, you create yeah. these incredible treatments, medicines, therapies, and then they get shelved because pharmaceutical companies don't want to fund it because it's a small patient population. It's not profitable. Right. Governments won't fund it for the same reason uh, because the population is so small. It's easy to ignore those people and they get marginalized and families can't fund it because, you know, Although two and a half million pounds is a paltry sum of money for the British government or a pharmaceutical company, it's huge for a family like ours. Yeah, and I I imagine that just dealing with the effects of this condition uh, could be costly as well. So it's not like the families who are who are dealing with it um, will have you know a ton of disposable income uh, to help exactly pull their money make it work. All right, all right, so you're working with the FDA. There are obviously other governing medical bodies in the EU and Europe and other countries um, where I don't know what the situation is with what the testing protocols are, what the requirements are. Have you, are you doing anything with those? So all of the work's happening in the United States at the moment, because that's where the expertise is, you know, the greatest minds in gene therapy and disease modeling, et cetera, are, are all in the United States. So we've always said we'll do whatever it takes to make us a success. And that's why we've, we've got the research happening there. And if we get it authorized for use and we have clinical trials in the States, you know, we'll travel to do those there. But in truth, I think if something's approved for use in the States, then it's easier to yeah. translate that over to the UK and Europe, et cetera. Yeah. There's, I mean, I'm thinking of a number of things that are approved in Europe and Germany in particular that here it's like, uh, no, we're not going to touch that one. And I'm not saying whether they're efficacious or not, but I know that that getting a yes from some one place doesn't mean you're going to get a yes from some other place. So what, um, what's next in terms of trying to, other than things like this, and I appreciate you being here and I hope that being here is somehow helpful and we'll tell people in a moment how they can um, chime in and, and, and contribute, but what's next in terms of getting the word out to try and raise some more of those funds or bring more awareness to what you're doing? So we're, we're always trying to raise awareness and we have a number of sort of different social media platforms, which have been really helpful. I feel it's such a godsend to live in an era where you can click send on a message and hit thousands or millions of people's inboxes. Um, no more challenges planned right now, but 
the truth of the situation is that we've so much money to raise, as I've said. So this journey will continue. And probably when we get to spring and summer next year, we'll have more things going on in the UK, maybe internationally. I don't know, but we're always willing to have people help us, you know, and get involved in the journey. And you can fundraise from anywhere, which is the great thing. So if people want to help, that's super. We have, I'll have to keep you posted. Um, we have, I have an idea that I want to do that uh, does two things simultaneously. One is help people discover the value of natural movement in this case with zero shoes, but also to at the same time uh, collect money to support some local charity or some uh, charity that we are connected to in some way. And so we're still in the middle. I'm being a little vague because there's some very cool things that were that are part of this that I don't want to reveal so that someone can't you know, do the same thing and beat me to the punch. Yeah. Um, but some really fun things that we could do where it's designed to go around place to place to place. And it's such an odd thing uh, that it'll get attention and we can, and um, the, what we're doing on our end of getting people to have the experience of, barefoot slash minimalist footwear is the key thing that will wake people up to then contribute in some way. Um, so we're, we're really looking forward to seeing what we can do to be helpful for anyone who's, who's trying to do something meaningful. And especially if they have a connection to the, the natural movement world, even, even more so. So I will be keeping you posted. Hopefully again, by spring, maybe we'll all be ready to go and um, have some fun doing that. But in the meantime, then why don't you tell people how they can find you, find out more and be helpful? Because I imagine there'll be many people listening to this who will be inspired to do so. So if people want to find out more about the charity and what we're doing and about my journey in the UK and the US, uh, they just need to Google hope for Hasty. H-A-S-T-I. Hasty is my daughter's name. You'll find our Facebook page. Our Instagram uh, is out there as well. And you can watch all that stuff. And if you can make a donation, that's amazing. You know, but even just liking and sharing posts is, is a great help as well. Yeah, we'll definitely do that. Well, um, dude, it, it's been such a pleasure. I'm, I mean, I'm really glad we hooked up, Chris. And I don't even remember how it happened, frankly. But suffice it to say, um, you know, you, again, just to reemphasize, we're not suggesting that people do the same thing you did of just take off your shoes and go walking on streets for 20 plus miles a day for days and days and days. But it is really interesting to hear what happens when someone really does put themselves um, in that unimaginable position and you come out the other end where we expect people to get, but you know, we hope they do it with a little more finesse. (laughs) I'm totally lacking in finesse. (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, you and I have that in common as well. So, uh, once again, thanks so much, Chris. And for everyone else, please go check out Hope for Hasty and let us know what your experience is and reach out to Chris in whatever way you can think of. Um, and again, feel free to go over to www.jointhemovementmovement.com to find ways you can interact with this podcast and all the previous episodes, all the places you can find us, YouTube and Twitter and Instagram, et cetera. If you have any questions or recommendations uh, for people who should be on the show, or if you just want to tell me I have a case of cranial rectal reorientation syndrome, I'm open to that as well. Basically, if you want to get a message to me, just drop me an email, move, M-O-V-E at jointhemovementmovement.com. And of course, if you want some super comfy, lightweight footwear, booze, booze, boots, shoes, and sandals for casual and performance use, uh, then check out zeroshoes.com. But more importantly, just go out, have fun, and live life feet first.